Would you remain standing and pray with me, please? Father God, as we come before you, Lord, after um, just, Lord, as I think uh, through this past week, God, I ask you to drive far from our hearts all distraction. Lord, any spirit of unrest, any anxiety or fear, Lord, we ask that you would come and replace that with your spirit of peace, Jesus, that only you can give. Lord, we ask you to settle down now upon this place. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes and our ears to what you would have us to know from you today. And God, as the preacher of your word, I would ask that the words of my mouth and meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you brought your Bibles this morning, please or, or open them to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 11 that Jim Cronkey read just a minute ago. Um, that's page 976 in your pew Bible. You're going to need that to, to follow along this morning. Because um, essentially, uh, I, people have asked me kind of what I'm going to preach in the light. Of course, there's kind of the, the, the purple elephant almost in the room, you know, of some things that have happened this week. And, you know, folks are kind of wondering what the preacher is going to say. Somebody asked me to bring you know, hellfire and brimstone this morning. <laughs> if you want that, you need to go back and listen to last week's sermon because that's not going to be what we're going to do today. That's not what the sermon's going to be. In fact, probably the structure of this is going to be kind of like when you go to the deli and you order some type of meat and you know how the machine just kind of slices it off and the pieces begin to kind of fall. That's what we're going to do with Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22 this morning. And as many of you know, for the past four weeks of this sermon series, St. Paul, leading up to our, our text today, has been declaring some pretty rather mind-blowing truths to us as individuals, as followers or as individuals who are followers of the gospel. You may remember that in chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 14, we learned about who we are in Christ and whose we are in Christ. God told us that we were, or, or the text tells us that we were blessed, that we were chosen, that we were predestined, that we are bestowed, that we, God has lavished upon us, that God is making all things known to us, and that he is uniting all things, including us, to himself. And then in chapter 1, 15 to 23 the other week, we saw St. Paul giving thanks first for the faith and love of the Christians at Ephesus, because faith and love are the genuine marks of being a Christian. <clears throat> and from those same verses... We discovered that St. Paul prayed that God would give five gifts to the believers or the particular people in the church of Ephesus. Five gifts, all from God. Gifts of wisdom and revelation from God. Gifts of, heart, gifts of their hearts being lightened. Gifts of hope, knowing that the whole world will one day be recreated new. Um, a gift of knowing that their inheritance is secure in Jesus and the gifts of knowing that the same Holy Spirit power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is operating at full power with and in through the people at Ephesus, including, we learned also, that that includes us as followers of Christ. Then last week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we looked at the past, the present, and the future position of Christians as individuals before God. We learned who we were before coming to Christ, that we were dead in sin. We learn who we are now, that God has made us alive because of what Jesus Christ has done. And then we learned what we are to be and what we are going to be, that we are to be about doing good works for the kingdom of Christ. And so for the past four weeks or so, we've been learning mainly about ourselves, 
our personal salvation story, our personal Christian life as individual Christians and what God ultimately has done for us. But now in Ephesians chapter 2, 11, or verses 11 to 22, Paul transitions from what it means to be in Christ as individuals to defining what it means to be in Christ corporately as the church. And beloved, basically it's central. If you need a thesis statement, it's this, is that the church is the activity of God in Christ through the Spirit among his people. I'll repeat that again. The church is the activity of God in Christ through the Spirit among his people. So what does the activity of God in Christ through the Spirit look like within his church? Well, beloved, Paul basically gives us three generalizations about the church this morning to help us know somewhat what the activity of God is, what the activity of God in Christ through the Spirit working in his church looks like. So what are those? Well, first, we're going to see this morning what the church is not. Second, we're going to see what the church is. And thirdly, we're going to see what the church is to be, what the church is not and what the church is and what the church is to be. So first, what the church is not. Okay, well, as I said a second ago, Paul gives us generalizations, if you will, okay? He's not going to be very specific on the start about what it means to be in Christ corporately as the church. And as I've said elsewhere in this series several weeks ago, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians is big picture stuff. It's where Paul lays out the ontology, the being, the what is of things before he tells us how to apply it in chapters 4 through 6. And so such is the case for us today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, or excuse me, chapter 2, 11 to 22 about the church. This is big picture, very, very general. And so when dealing with the topic so general as the church, Paul begins first, or sometimes it's helpful to, if we need to define what something is, by first talking about what it is not. And that's exactly what St. Paul does in verses 11 to 12 of Ephesians 2. Read those with me, please. Paul says, therefore, beginning with verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul begins, he wa- or Paul begins here by wanting, or he wants to paint a very, or excuse me, he wants to clear the table, rather, of any and all assumptions about what the church is by first stating what the church is not. And so he does this by issuing the command. He calls the Ephesians to remember twice. Remember who you are. Remember what? Well, remember who you were pre-church. Remember who you were before coming to Christ. And essentially, there are seven negative realities about them corporately prior to them coming to Christ. What is that? Well, first of all, he says that you're Gentiles. Then second, you're uncircumcised. Third, you're without Christ. Fourth, you're aliens to the commonwealth. Five, strangers to the covenant. Six, having no hope. And seven, you're godless. So there's some good news. You know, I mean, it's kind of, kind of, yeah, it puts a damper on things. But no, why is Paul bringing this up? Why? I mean, he's been really positive for the most part all the way through this, this passage. What in the world? What's brought this up? Well, friends, listen, humanity as a whole has always struggled with an us versus them mentality. We, by our sinful nature, build barriers to shut others out. 
And friends, while the Jews were often the ones who, uh, are get, who, who get singled out for being ethically discriminatory in the Bible, listen, the Greeks, that is the Ephesians, who this book is written to, they're just as guilty, and Paul knows it. Listen, slavery was a reality in Ephesus, okay? And so automatically you had these barriers between slave owners and slaves, especially Christian slave owners, those who had come to Christ, and Christian slaves who were trying to see each other as spiritual equals. Women in the majority of the Greek culture and also in Ephesus were looked down upon as inferior beings. If a Greek woman became a Christian, her life, her value systems would change as well as her value to her husband. And oftentimes, more than likely, her unbelieving unbelieving husband would abandon her. And the Greeks at that time, when Paul is writing to the Ephesians here, they were pretty arrogant, to be honest with you. They were pretty proud of their civilized culture. They saw themselves as a superior race in knowledge and worth, and usually considered everyone else around them to be mere barbarians. Cicero is famous, ancient Greek philosopher, or leader, he said, all Greeks say, all men are divided into two classes, Greeks and barbarians. Barbarians being a slang term at that time, essentially mocking the language of one they did not understand. See, when uh, you were out in the marketplace and they were trying to talk to people who didn't speak Greek, all it sounded like to them was ba, 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 you know, basically, and, I, and that's just where it is, not ba, 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 brand or whatever that Beach Boys song is or whoever's saying that, but just ba, 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 ba. And so the Greeks couldn't make out what they were saying and they got caught the name barbarians. <laughs> all right. Well, when Paul's writing this, it's pretty certain, though, that the Ephesian Christians wanted to bring their high Greek pedigrees to their Christian faith and to the church, and then have the audacity to get a little snooty, to get a little snotty and a little snobbish about it, about who they were, and then Paul ultimately calls them on the carpet saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, Ephesians. Listen, Greeks. Listen up. Listen to who you were. Listen, you were Gentiles, which means, guess what? You were not Jews. The Jews are the chosen people of God, okay? You're being grafted in. The Jews are the true people of the real God. You were Gentiles. Remember that. Then he says you're uncircumcised. And listen, the Ephesians did not have the outward sign of the covenant people of God handed down to them that was started with Abraham. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians that they were actually the real outcast, according to the Jews, the people of God. But then in the same breath, in that one particular verse, Paul pretty much also even backhands the Judaizers, the circumcision group, if you were wondering who that is, he basically backhands them and says, and by the way, circumcision, yeah, that's not really a thing about the heart. That's not really spiritual. That's made with hands. Beloved, basically, it's stating that circumcision is not anything other than an outward sign. It doesn't really show anything about the inward heart or a person who has converted over to Christ. Paul also tells the, tells the, the, the Greeks, the, the Ephesians, listen, you were, you, you were separated from Christ. It's kind of like this. He's kind of saying, you know, oh, oh Ephesians, let, let, let me remind you, <laughs> you, all your philosophers of Plato and Socrates and Herodotus and all these other people, listen, you had no true in the flesh messianic promise of salvation. Remember that. 
He also tells them, listen, you're aliens to the commonwealth. Well, what's that about? Listen, being a member of the city in Greek culture was a big deal. Because if you're a member of the city, it gave you status. It gave you rights. It gave you privileges and protection underneath the Roman Empire. And so basically Paul's telling him, oh, Ephesians, listen, you know, you may be part of the polis of Ephesus or the city, but you were not part of the true city of God, the people of God, the real city, the real city which offers a, not only just protection, but a relationship with God, a relationship that offers blessing and protection and love. He also says, listen, remember, you were strangers to the covenants. What's that about? The covenants of God were an amazing thing for the Jewish people. Listen, they offered a factual history for the people, for the, for the Israelites, for the people of God. They had a purpose. They had a plan and a destiny for those who were within God's covenants. Beloved, the Greeks were left to roam and wallow in an uncertain sea of gods. They were kind of living a lottery-like life, if you will waiting to hit the jackpot of placating the pantheon gods for a blessing. Basically what they were doing is leaving their life up, leaving a considerable amount of their life up for chance and fate. Paul so says, listen, you had no hope. Many Stoic philosophers of the day when Paul was writing taught that history repeated itself every several thousand years. And there's a little debate about how long it actually was. But at the, the, the history was just kind of this cyclical thing that would go around and around and around. The world would eventually be burned up and then it was reborn to repeat the same cycle over again. That's not very hopeful. That's not very helpful. But against that, Christianity has at its core the resurrection of Christ where death is conquered. And life has a continuous direction of value and purpose, ultimately communion with God. Paul also says, listen, you're also godless. And it wasn't that the Greeks, the Ephesians, didn't have a god. They had many gods. But they didn't want, ultimately, the true God. They had rejected him and suppressed the truth until God had given them the ability to believe. And we talked about that the other week. And so Paul says, hey, listen, Ephesian Greeks, remember who you were before God grafted you into the people of God through Jesus Christ. Before that, you were the outcast. So why are you getting kind of snooty or arrogant toward other people? Beloved, just as we learned last week that our salvation is a gift of God by grace through faith that we cannot earn, that we cannot buy, that we cannot gain, verses, or verses 11 and 12 really points to this. It points out that, listen, our, our, our corporate, our national, our political, our social, our ethnic, and other identities in this world really don't count for much in the family of God. In the church. Friend, though, listen, our sinful natures, much like these Ephesian Greeks, will always cause us to look for ways to identify and distinguish ourselves from others. That's what the problem was with the Ephesian church. And essentially, what Paul told both the Jew and the Greek throughout his ministry is listen, to leave the cultural, societal, grassroot baggage stuff at the door. For now they are one in Christ, in his church. 
And you know what, friends? I think in the wake of this week and some things that have happened in the last few weeks, we would probably do well to hear the same thing today. Friends, listen up. It is much more difficult, much more difficult for us to become a spiritually, emotionally healthy, mature person in Christ than it is to cling to the worldly identities, the heritages of our past, our skin color, our politics, our nationality, our ethnic backgrounds, or things of the past that you can't do anything about. It's much, more e- it's much harder to become a spiritually mature person in Christ than it is to hold on to those things. And Paul says, beloved, check them at the door. You want to know this morning if you're clinging to world culturally identities such as these Greeks were? Let me ask you this. What are you offended by and why? I mean, beloved, I got to be honest with you. I will have watched America this week go pretty much farther off the rails morally as far as I'm concerned, as far as the Bible's concerned. My soul's been pretty grieved by that. I don't know about you. Because true inalienable rights do not contradict God's revealed word, okay? That's just the way the world's made. And when people say things like, well, set God aside in the argument. Listen, friends, that's impossible for those of us whom we cry out and say that Jesus is really Lord. We cannot do that. But this week I grieved. Probably many of you. Why? Because, yes, I self-identify as a follower of Christ in this world. But I also self-identify as an American. However, what America has chosen to do this week goes against the grain of what God says is good. Being an American and a Christian are becoming less and less compatible, it seems, if they ever were compatible And friends, we have to come to grips with the fact that we can no longer culturally identify as a Christian American, but as Christians who just so happen to also live in America. Don't hear me wrong. I love this country. I have many relatives that fought for it. But this country is not my savior, and neither is it yours. I have to love Jesus more. Pledge allegiance to the flag, sure, but pledge ultimate allegiances to Jesus. Paul's point of reminding the Ephesians of who they were before coming to Christ was to emphasize that clinging to cultural, racial, or ethical identities as a Greek has little to do, do, if anything, with being part of the church. Perhaps we need to hear the same thing in America today. Friends, that's what the church is not. Secondly, what the church is. Verses 13 to 22, read with me, please. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Beloved, those are amazing words. And so I just want to go through and just kind of unpack these phrases. The first thing Paul, or what Paul does, he gives us really eight acting verbs from these, these particular, or from 13 to 22, that describes the activity of what God and Christ are doing inside his church. What are those? First one is, is that Jesus is our peace in verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Listen, friend, Jesus died on our behalf for our sin, making peace with God. I don't know how much better it can get in life than that. Listen also, number two, he made us one in verse 14. Listen, Jew and Gentile are no different spiritually. That was Paul's point, that there is no difference between human mankind spiritually. Therefore, all who come to Christ are one and the same. And then thirdly, he has broken down the wall of hostility in verse 14. Beloved, a lot of times when we hear that, we're like, what are we talking about? Wall of hostility. I, I, okay, is that a wall? Is that like a fortress? What's going on there? Listen, in the temple court, we're in the temple court of the Jewish synagogue, okay, there were, there were there, the Gentiles ultimately were excluded. They could not come into the inner court of the temple. In fact, and the Jews are so emphatic about this, there's a sign that was put in the temple, that, a t- sign that was hung that says this, No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary enclosure. Anyone caught doing so has himself to blame for his ensuing death. So basically what's going on is in the Jewish temple in the worship of God, there's a wall that these people are a fence, if you will, or a hedge that these people are not to go over. And in a sense, what that sign says is if you cross it, Gentile, we're going to kill you. Jesus has broken down that wall. Listen, number four, he abolished the commandments in verse 15. The laws mentioned there, what are those commandments? Essentially are the ceremonial laws, the feast, sacrifice offerings, the cleanliest laws and purifications that were unique and separate acts of the Israelites. God did not abolish, or Jesus did not abolish the moral law, the Ten Commandments, okay? Number five, he created one humanity in verse 15. He says, by abolishing the law, the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Listen, people who come to Christ are no longer Jew nor Greek. They're neither black or white. They're Christians. That is it. Number six, he made peace. He tells us also, again, he made peace in verse 15. And essentially it's because of the work of, that Christ has done in making peace with God. So then those who are made in the image of Christ are to be at peace with one another. Beloved, Christ makes that possible in this culture. Number seven, he says he reconciled us to God in verse 16. The idea of here of being reconciled here, here is going from being an enemy of God to a friend. And then also, we are no longer enemies with one another, but friends because of what Christ has done. Then verse 16, he says he's put to death hostilities. He's put to death hostility. 
Beloved, since we are no longer enemies with God, but his, fr- but his friends, so also ought Christians be friends with one another. Beloved, that is God's work in the church. But then there are five passive verbs where the action of God in Christ through the Spirit is being done to us. Listen, he says, we are brought near in verse 13. And rabbis at that time usually referred to Gentiles as people who were far off from the true God. In other words, they were way out there. You know, when we say somebody's kind of out in left field, it's kind of the same thing. These Gentiles were out in left field, if you are. The Jews thought of themselves to be near to God. Now Paul says that Jew and Gentile alike are brought near. There's no distinction between the races or ethnic backgrounds. He says in verse 18 that the Spirit now gives us access. That word access is only used three times in the New Testament. And it's in this case, it's used to describe a court official who would go in and introduce someone of a lower class to the king. Friend, we have someone, namely Jesus, who goes and introduces us to the Father. He tells us also we're being built upon a foundation in verse 20. What, or verse 20, what's that about? He says the, it's about the apostle, or he says the apostles and the prophets. And then Christ himself being the cornerstone. Beloved, the foundation of which we are being built upon is none other than the word of God. As revealed to the Old Testament writings, the law, the prophets and the writings. As well as the Holy Spirit power given to the apostles who penned the New Testament. And is still passed on to the church today to a certain degree through apostolic succession. Then he goes on to say in verse 21, we're joined together. And that refers to the careful joining of every component. In other words, every single person who is in the church. We, Christian, Jew, Gentile alike. They are being brought together under Christ. Just as one would snugly fit maybe two pieces of wood to build something like this. They are building it so close that you can't see the seams or the gaps in between. And then in verse 22 he says, we're being built together. We're being built together. Listen, it's Christ church. It is Christ church church and he is doing the work of building if Christ is doing the work the church then is being built perfectly spotless and without blemish in other words God is doing it the way he wants to these days listen okay so all 13 of these are actions of God the father son and holy spirit working in the church in and among through the people of God why is that important big deal so what listen friend It's easy to kind of get what the Bible says about us as individual Christians, okay? Our salvation and how we live out in sanctification and we grow in Christ. And we we talked about that last week, and that was pretty easy. But this week, as I began to look through commentaries and various ones, I was really, really thrilled. I've got one that's called the Tour de Force on Ephesians. It's really huge. I open it up, and the first sentence says, this is the most difficult part of the entire book. Why is that? Basically, the author says, listen, it's easy to understand who we are individually as Christians these days. It's hard, like, like, again, like last week. It's hard, though, to understand how we corporately fit together. Why? Because individualism is so rampant in this world. It's what we're taught from birth. It's how we're raised. It's what a lot of our culture is founded upon is radical individual autonomy. I mean, think about it. Most of us think we're pretty important. And then it's, the, and it's because of that we struggle with what it means to be the church corporately, much less embrace the church. What do you mean? Consider this, friends. 
The church, the people of God, existed prior to your birth. Prior really to anything you have ever done or not done. The people of God, the church, has really existed since Adam and Eve. Consider this. We do not create the church. God creates the church. The church just is because God creates it. It exists, friend, whether or not you decide to be part of it or not. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit create the church, not you, not me, not our fanciful vision, not our denomination. We, as believers, simply participate and enter into that which God has given us, and that is the church. And friends, if the church has existed before we were born, and if we did not create the church, but it is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, or He and Christ and the whole Trinity, what right do we have to measure it? What right do we have to define it, evaluate it, and judge it by what we oftentimes think it ought to be? There's a lot of that that goes on in our culture. And it's often people projecting their own needs and desires upon the church. Listen, friends, when we gather as the church, and you walked in here this morning, including myself, each of us really walked into a meeting that already started some 2,000 years ago. We're just showing up. But friends, as long as Christians continue to do our own individual thing and focus on ourselves, our self-importance, and do not see that it is Christ who is forming believers collectively into the one people of God, his church, by, but when he, let me back up and restate that again. Okay, but as long as we as Christians continue to do our own individual thing, We've, our, and we focus on ourselves and our self-importance and do not see that it is Christ who is forming believers collectively into one people of God, that it is Christ who is making peace possible, that it is Christ breaking down walls that separate his people, that it is Christ who is creating us into one humanity, who is reconciling, or reconciling us to God and each other. Listen, as long as we continue to focus on ourselves, the church will remain stunted, immature, powerless, and will continue to be a fledgling, self-help, self-centered, isolated, self-improvement project comprised of individuals demanding their needs to be met in terms of self-fulfillment, self-defined happiness, and self-defined love. Beloved, I could make a billion points of application here on all of this, but let, I just want to do one, okay? Listen, each week, each week I see, see, hear, and read people writing and talking about what the church is not these days, what it needs to be, what it needs to become, what it needs to do to become more effective. But Paul describes the activity of how God builds his church. In these verses, are we satisfied with that, Beloved. Paul says that the church is the place where the peace of Christ is preached, where we are brought near to God, that it's in the church where we are all treated, all to be treated the same. It's in the church where barrier walls of race, gender, ethnic groups no longer matter. It's supposed to be a place where membership is not based on moralism and laws, but rather the work of Christ. The church is a place where teaching is based on the foundation of the apostles, God's revealed word, not opinions. It's where people are becoming new creations, finding reconciliation with God and neighbor. It's where it's a place we come to where we find salvation. 
It's a place we come to, to to grow and to become followers of Christ as we encourage and stir one another up to good work. That's the church that God, that's the church that Paul talks about. That is the church that God is at work at, according to the Apostle Paul in verses 13 to 22. So finally, third point, what is the church to be? Verses 19 to 22. Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Quickly, beloved, we means you, me, I. We're being built into the household of God. It's a place where God gathers his family together. This past week, a good friend of mine that we graduated seminary together, um, he's now a professor of seminary, came in, or professor at a seminary in Texas. He came to visit my wife and I this past week, and they have three kids, and I'm sitting there with my two kids, my wife, and all of us gathered around the table. I guess there was probably nine of us and I sit there and I look, and you know, it's like each one of these little kids, you know, I mean, we've got Luke Samuel, my son, he's, you know, just kind of, kind of vegging out, he's hanging out there. The other kids are from like ages two to three to four to five, I mean, stepping stone. I was like, you know, we're sitting there around the table eating. Couldn't help but think, you know, this is kind of how the family of God is. I, and it just, we're all different. We're all at different stages of maturity, just like these kids around the table, some of us have greater needs than others, you know. Some are kind of whiny, need to go to the bathroom, you know. Have whatever it is that they've got that they need at the moment, you know. So, some are a little more vocal. Some are a little more quiet. Some of us are a little older. Some of us are a little more experienced. But, you know, we're, but we're all sitting there as one. That's kind of what it is to be in the family of God. Beloved, we're also part of the holy temple of the Lord, as Paul says in verse 21. We're a place or excuse me, we are part of the holy temple of the Lord, a place where we are set apart to worship God in all of life, not just here on Sunday. That was, that's verse tw- uh, 21. And Paul also tells us in the remaining verse, the, the ending verse in verse 22, that we are a dwelling place for God. A dwelling place for God. You and me, a dwelling place for God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul said, or do you not know, listen up, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. That means that each and every one of us, that God dwells in you. Beloved, the church is a place It's a place where God makes himself known to us in our language. He makes himself known to us in our experience. Makes himself known in word and sacrament here at this table weekly. It's a place where God is in relationship with his people who are in relationship with Jesus Christ and each other. The church in the world is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit incarnate on this earth. Beloved, 
We, the church, are the work of God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in God's people. In a sense, we're all a thin place because we are the church. Certainly, friends, these weeks and probably weeks ahead are gonna become a little more difficult. And I leave with you the words of Matthew, six, or this week, the words of Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, whether that's Peter or Jesus or both, it doesn't really matter. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Beloved, the church is not the culture. The church is the work of God. And friend, the church has outlived every major empire up until date. Let us take notice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.